And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes. But in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. As we sit here on the day, the night before the impeachment vote of Donald J. Trump on this historic night, I thought of inviting someone on the podcast who was very much a part of the abuse of office on the part of President Richard Nixon, who was under investigation and going through impeachment hearings uh, back in 1974. Um, and the House voted on their articles of impeachment that included um, illegal and abusive actions against my guest here uh, today on the podcast. And um, as a result of the House committee voting in favor of these articles, um, within a number of days, Richard Nixon decided he did not want to wait for the vote that was surely going to take place on the House floor and remove him, be the first president to be removed uh, from office because the Democrats had the Senate and he was going to get convicted, so he resigned. But my guest here today on the podcast, he was somebody who was a patriotic American. He was a former Marine. Before that, he was born in Chicago, grew up partly in Detroit, went to the Cranbrook uh, School uh, there in all my fellow Michiganders, we all know Cranbrook. Parents had uh, wanted him to be a concert pianist. And instead, tragically, his mother and his sister died. And at that point, uh, his life uh, changed uh, in, a, in a profound way. So in 1954, he found himself, after having gone to, uh, I think, Harvard and Oxford, joining the Marine Corps uh, to you know, do his bit to support the defense of the country. And upon getting out of the Marine Corps, eventually worked for the Rand Corporation, which is a, that was hired often by the Pentagon and others in the government to do analysis and other uh, research activities. And he was hired to do these research activities and eventually uh, worked in the office of the Secretary of Defense uh, under Lyndon Johnson. Uh, that man's name was Robert McNamara. And, um, and uh, the Rand Corporation had also had undertaken a, a study, a research project, to figure out just what happened. How did we get into Vietnam? It was already a huge morass by this point. By the time now we're talking about 1967, 68, uh, it was clear to everyone that this was uh, an awful, awful mistake 
uh, an immoral action on the part of this country. And there was a rising, rising tide of opposition to the war uh, in the United States and, of course, obviously around the world. And uh, my guest decided that uh, he could no longer have the American people, his fellow Americans, in the dark about the lies that they were being told. Lies from their, from their very president, not just the Secretary of Defense, not just the Pentagon, whatever, but from the President of the United States, lying to the American people. There was a time when the, just the very thought that a president would try to get away with these big lies would be so abhorrent to people like my guests that, that there was a greater calling, a greater duty to tell the truth to the American people, tell the truth in this case about why we were really in Vietnam and how it was an unwinnable war. And there were lives being lost at such an off. I remember one week, I think Life Magazine printed the photos of the 500 plus that had died that week, 500 plus Americans that had died that week. Thousands upon thousands of, of Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, North Vietnamese, eventually obviously Cambodians, Laotians. The statistics go anywhere from 2 million Southeast Asians to 4 million Southeast Asians who were killed in this war, this war of our doing. And my guests couldn't, couldn't participate in it any longer. And as an act of conscience, gave these documents to the New York Times. And they were called the Pentagon Papers. If you're old enough to remember this, uh, you remember it well. If you're, if you're young, you should look this up. It was a, it was a, a powerful moment in, in American history, and nobody knew which way things were going to go. And as a result of my guest doing this, Richard Nixon had formed a unit, if you can believe this, within the White House, to do a number of illegal activities against his opponents, his, what he called his enemies. Uh, they were often anti-war people, but they were, there were a wide variety of people that just opposed Richard Nixon and his policies. And, and so this unit called the Plumbers Unit consisted of G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt and a number of others. And they were ordered to break in to the psychiatrist's office of my guest here today in uh, over Labor Day in 1971 to steal records so that they could discredit this individual who had released the, the Pentagon papers. And as a result of that action, an action planned in the White House, imagine that, imagine that, breaking into a private citizen's shrink's office to dig up dirt on them so as to discredit them and to remember, there's an election coming up the next year in 1972. So this, so basically to prime the pump for the election, discredit an opponent, where have we heard this before? You don't have to go back any further than this past July. But this happened. This happened back in 1971. And as a result, when the impeachment vote came up, the plumber's unit, this, these illegal activities, including against my guest here today were part of the impeachment of Richard Nixon and passed the house judiciary committee at that time. And I thought really who, who better to have on and, and thank God he is still with us. He is still active. He is still fighting the fight for all of us. He is, you know, in the pantheon of great Americans that have affected our history in the last hundred years 
uh, you know, you can name the names from Rosa Parks uh, to so many others that because of a simple action they took as a citizen, as a civilian, we actually got to be a little bit better of a country. Uh, But it doesn't happen without the struggle. It doesn't happen without people like my guest here today, Mr. Daniel Ellsberg. Daniel, welcome to my podcast. Wonderful to be here, Michael. Uh, It's I'm honored to be mentioned in the same sentence with Rosa Parks. When this when this happened to you, I was in twelfth uh, grade in mm-hmm. high school, so I'm very I have a very clear memory of the, of the whole thing. But I want to point out that this particular thing. Well, first of all, you exposed the truth by sharing these papers, and of course, the New York Times was ordered by the judge uh, to cease publishing the truth about Vietnam in these papers, and I think that um, they were shut down, at least this part of them publishing the story was shut down for a number, maybe yeah. two weeks, something mm-hmm. like that. And um, and in that time, uh, and they made a movie about this, I think a year or so ago called The Post, uh, that Catherine Graham and the Washington Post decided to uh, just start publishing it while The Times was under... <laughs> Under, under the order of the court not to publish, they started publishing. And then they were shut down. And and then, if I remember the story correctly, uh, you and your wife uh, uh, went into hiding because you knew at that point the, the, the federal government was looking for you. And during those weeks, you gave it to another 15 newspapers across the country so that everybody would have this. So everybody, and they all started publishing it. And it was just like, Am I, do I have that correct? The, the president was saying and the attorney general was saying that the publication of these papers was uh, of immediate uh, hurt the national security of the United States during wartime uh, and that um, the people, anybody publishing this was uh, directly uh, hurting the national security. And yet 17 newspapers who looked at those documents that I gave them uh, and with the help of other people, by the way, uh, and looked and said, we don't agree with that. We think the public needs to know this, and we don't see that this top-secret history is going to hurt uh, the United States at all. And on the contrary, it will help it by letting us understand what's going on. And they defied the president and the attorney general. There were four injunctions, the uh, Boston Globe, after the Washington Post and the New York Times, the Boston Globe was enjoined. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch was enjoined. Eventually, they gave up because with eventually uh, 17 papers involved, one of the prosecutors said, well, it's like herding bees. We can't, we can't stop this. But um, and then it went, went to the Supreme Court. But there was a, this was, in effect, a wave of civil disobedience across the country by newspapers, uh, one after another. Uh, which, as you know, Michael, are not sort of public interest uh, pro bono organizations. They're not nonprofit NGOs exactly. They were all facing risks of prosecution and risks to their uh, financial interests. And I don't think there's been anything like that in any country that I've ever heard of where so many important institutions simply defied the executive branch and risked prosecution Mm, and risked injunctions to, uh, to put out the truth. So it was it was a very um, admirable period, which to my surprise, they don't particularly um, 
celebrate when the anniversaries come along. The Post and the Times tend to congratulate themselves uh, reasonably for what they did, but the other 15 newspapers uh, don't seem to recognize the anniversaries, and, and they really should, because we need to remember that period. We need it right now, when they and all their colleagues are being called enemies of the people, and they rise to that right. challenge and protect our democracy as they did then, or let themselves become uh, channels for government handouts, as in so many other countries. So this this thing that happened with, okay, so they, they you know, obviously the Nixon administration, they're furious that this has happened. Most of the, as I remember, the Pentagon Papers were showing all the mistakes and all the lies that happened uh, from the early years, from actually from uh, uh, Truman through Eisenhower, Kennedy, especially uh, Johnson. Uh, but Nixon had only been in office, uh, uh, you know, a couple of years um, and yet uh, took it upon himself uh, to make sure he brought you down. And um, they had, the, I, if I'm, am I correct that there was even an order to assault you their interest was not in going to my psychiatrist's office to get psychoanalysis, office, to get information to discredit me. I'm already facing 12 felony counts. And whatever my, um, uh, for what I had actually done, you know, copy these papers, uh, there was no question of fact involved here. I acknowledged that from the beginning. So uh, discrediting me was not going to affect the outcome of the trial. And the outcome of the trial, in fact, wasn't what Nixon was concerned about very much anyway. What they wanted was information to blackmail me with, to threaten me uh, th uh, with revealing, so that I would stop saying what I knew to be Nixon's current strategy. Now, the Pentagon Papers ended in 68, before Nixon came in. So they didn't incriminate Nixon, except for his participation under Eisenhower. They didn't say much about Nixon at that time. So he could easily say, well, this was the Democrats. Uh, who did this, not my policy. I was saying on the basis of inside knowledge that he was continuing essentially the same lies and the same threats of escalation, except he was increasing them. He hoped essentially to win in Vietnam by threatening more than the Democrats had ever threatened, namely nuclear weapons against North Vietnam, which are directly threats con directly conveyed and for which plans for nuclear attacks existed, uh, known mm. to me by, by people who had actually seen them. Also threats of invading Laos and Cambodia, which he eventually did do, not the nuclear, invading right. North Vietnam, mining Haiphong, right. which involved uh, confronting Soviet shipping, among other things, and uh, uh, basically escalating the war very much in order to get the North Vietnamese to uh, make concessions that would amount to our winning the war, namely to allow us to take our troops out, but to continue air power, air uh, support to General Tu, the alleged, or the president, or puppet president of uh, South Vietnam. Our puppet, right. Who had who put Nixon into office, basically, by doing what Trump is accused of, of doing, I should say, what the Russians are accused of doing, colluding with a presidential candidate, Nixon, uh, to get him elected. 
And uh, they did that by refusing Johnson's invitation, uh, which they had earlier accepted, to go to Paris and start negotiations that might end the war. And Nixon persuaded Hugh not to go, uh, just was just before the election. Uh, and that Hugh's uh, refusal to go did stop the increase in the polls that Hubert Humphrey had been experiencing right then. He was even with Nixon at that point and led to Nixon's winning mm-hmm. by a very close margin. After which Nixon was indebted, in, in fact, really controlled by Tew in a way, because Tew could have revealed at any point the impeachable acts of Nixon, which Lyndon Johnson described as treason. Uh, and I, I question whether it was treason. It certainly was an impeachable act at that point. So uh, for that, the war continued in the Nixon administration and then following in the Ford administration until 1975, six years later. And before 73, another 20,000 Americans had had their names on the Vietnam Memorial and half a million or more Vietnamese had died in order to prevent Nixon from being impeached, uh, basically by revelation by Tew that he had colluded uh, to win an election with a foreign power earlier. So the, the analogy, in other words, to, to right now wow. is, is rather striking. So essentially, um, what you're saying is is that they, they wanted those uh, psychiatric files on you to use as They blackmail. hoped they would find things that uh, that I wouldn't want out, and they could keep me from repeating or saying uh, that Nixon was making nuclear threats, that he intended to continue the war, the war was likely to get larger. Above all, they feared that I had documents. Right. Uh, and I didn't. I had documents, but not what they feared. And uh, I could have had because there were people who left the administration when some of that escalation did occur. Uh, very creditably resigned from the National Security Council over the invasion of Cambodia, but they didn't take documents with them or give them to me or anybody else. As one of those people, Roger Morris, a deputy to Kissinger, said later, it was the greatest shame of his life that they had not revealed documents at that time. He said, we should have thrown open the safes and screamed bloody murder because that's exactly what it was. afraid that had given me documents like that, and they had to keep me quiet. And that's why they later brought people up mm. when they hadn't found material in Dr. Fielding's office with which to blackmail me. Uh, they then brought a dozen Cuban-Americans, uh, veterans of the Bay of Pigs, on May 3rd, 1972, to the steps of the Capitol with orders to incapacitate me totally. And this was in a week when, on the tapes, Kissinger and Nixon are discussing possible use of nuclear weapons. Nixon is favoring that. And uh, they were afraid that I would have documents at that point that would forecast that. And uh, they had to shut me up entirely. Wow. So in addition to them, knowing that you knew you had information about what Nixon was really up to and fearing that you had even more information or documents, which you didn't have, but they feared that you might, by breaking into the psychiatrist's office, Dr. Fielding, um, they would somehow be able to ha- hold some sway over you and control you um, with uh, whatever information they were going to, to right. find right. Uh, in his office, 
And as a result of uh, this break-in and when it became knowledge, a public knowledge, I think through John Dean. John Dean had been told by the uh, effective head of the plumbers, Edgar Krogh. By the way, they were called plumbers because they thought of themselves as stopping leaks. And essentially, that was leaks by me. That's what they were That's what they were afraid of. The break-in of your psychiatrist's office, Dr. Feeling, though, occurred almost really, not, not quite a full year, but about nine months before the break-in at Watergate. That's right. They later, <laughs> actually, the effort to incapacitate me totally which wasn't carried out because they became, it's a longer story, but uh, they became worried at the time that they were being set up, quote, as patsies to be caught. And they decided to throw that one. Mm. But that very night, they were taken Mm. around to their reconnoiter, their next target, which was the Watergate Hotel, where the the Watergate offices, where the Democratic National Committee was. And uh, weeks after that, a couple weeks after the attempt to incapacitate me, wasn't carried through. Uh, they did go into the Watergate offices, and then uh, they weren't caught that night. And then to repair taps, bugs that hadn't functioned that first night, they went in again a second time, and this time they were caught. And they were being run essentially by Hunt and Liddy, the very people who had uh, engineered the burglary of my uh, psychiatrist's office earlier. So in other words, when they were caught... They now had blackmail on Nixon because they knew of these earlier crimes. Uh, actually, it's never right. been proved, although it has been alleged, that Nixon knew of the actual break-in to, you know, beforehand of the break-in to the Watergate. But these people knew about his earlier crimes directly against me, which were ordered out of the Oval Office. So they had to keep them quiet. And by giving uh, more than $100,000, essentially in bribery money to get them to perjure themselves in front of the grand jury and say that they did not know of any previous crimes. Uh, This was further obstruction of justice. Mm. Dean told the president it was a cancer on the presidency. It was getting further and further. They had to lie to conceal other lies. And uh, eventually, because Dean brought that out, it did eventually get to my court because the trial was still going on and they were obliged to inform the court And um, uh, that came out. And then uh, Hunt and others uh, reversed their perjury and revealed things about the uh, wiretapping of me, the uh, psychological Mm -hmm. profiles that the the CIA had done against me, which was against their charter to do on an American citizen. And uh, other other crimes came up. This is all being coordinated out of the White House. Hunt and Liddy, they're in there. I think their offices there, wherever they were meeting in the old executive office building, uh, all part of the White House complex there. And, and this would eventually all come together with all the other things they were doing, the so-called plumbers unit, as part of one of the articles of impeachment, the abuse of power, Nixon's abuse of power. So here we are now. How are you feeling tonight? I mean, here we are. We're on the eve of this impeachment vote. You are a historic figure that that the actions that you had bravely taken to tell the truth about Vietnam and it resulting in this abuse of you, first of all, the break-in at your psychiatrist's office, but also the, the plan to incapacitate you, and then the cover-up, the obstruction of justice. Just as, by the way, uh, one of the counts of impeachment here against uh, President Trump 
which will almost certainly go through tomorrow in the House, um, is essentially cover-up, obstruction of justice, which he went through, which which uh, Trump organized in response to a truth teller, to a whistleblower, like right, me. to a whistleblower like you, and in res- to keep that from being investigated, uh, Trump made absolutely unprecedented orders of cover-up that no government official could re- respond to subpoenas by the by the Congress. You know, a clear defiance of the Constitution, the separation of powers, the powers of Congress here to investigate and impeach. He's in effect, uh, you know, it's like rolling up the 82nd Airborne around the White House and saying, uh, come and get me. <laughs> right. An old mobster film or something. You're right. threatening people uh, with great consequences if they told the truth as ordered by Congress. So what's that like for you today, today, tonight? Here we are. And it's it's I, it's not exactly deja vu, but it's kind of, it must have... What what is going through you right now? Well, there is a difference in the situation, which is that the Senate is certain, uh, almost you know the Republicans in the Senate, to defy the law, to defy the Constitution, to defy the evidence of their own senses uh, as to uh, what's happened here, and vote to acquit. So he will almost certainly be acquitted of this indictment. Uh, which is what the impeachment amounts to, an indictment. And he will go into the election uh, claiming that he's been totally exonerated, uh, indicating, by the way, a very dangerous precedent. It pretty much comes close to saying that a president whose party controls the Senate, which Mm. determines conviction, is above the law. Right. Anything he wants, uh, foreign affairs and domestic affairs. Uh, if, a, if a president can get away with this, uh, he can definitely get away with anything if his own party controls the Senate. And that means that we don't have a government of law. He is, in effect, a king. So, yeah. So the big difference, obviously, between tonight, uh, tomorrow and uh, back in 1974 is. Remember what a, a real difference in both parties from then is this, that uh, going to another in, uh, another indict, uh, impeachment, a number of Clinton, I think 17 Democrats voted for the inquiry, impeachment inquiry into Clinton, and uh, a number uh, were, would have voted for impeachment at that point. What Nixon faced and led to his resignation was that Republicans in the his Senate party, came to yeah. him said, we're going to vote against you because the evidence is so clear. Now, that obviously simply can't happen now for the simple reason that the Republicans are proving absolutely impervious to evidence and uh, to their obligations to uphold the Constitution. How did this happen? How did how did we go from a time when there were Republicans who told Nixon to stand down? Yes. We are going to vote to convict you if you don't resign. That, that we're that after this vote tomorrow and it goes to the Senate after the holidays, that the, that the Senate has already made clear that, that it may be a near unanimous uh, vote amongst the Republicans in the Senate to ignore the evidence, to ignore the constitution and just, just line up like lemmings behind Donald Trump. And it's not enough to move 
Trump out of office, which we won't do by uh, impeachment and conviction. But it's not enough to move him out of office by election, which is absolutely essential for reasons I hope we go into. But that's not enough. The Senate has to be changed. The House has to be changed. And really, all these are necessary conditions for survival in terms of our climate, climate change, in terms of our democracy, I would say. Uh, it's essential. It's not enough because the Democrats have not done nearly enough uh, in the past, and I, they won't do enough on these issues in the future. But at least they won't be leading in exactly the wrong direction as the Republicans are right now. So, okay, so let's jump ahead a month or so. Uh, the Senate has not convicted Trump. Um, he claims a great victory. Uh, they uh, they try to slam the Democrats for trying to, you know, overthrow the king. Yeah. What do we do then? Where are we at then? We do have an election, obviously. There is still an election yeah. scheduled. Well, this is correct. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you, uh, here's a thought that <laughs> will not uh, be received well, I suspect, by uh, many in your audience, but I'm going to tell you the truth of what I think here, what I worry about. There is more than a chance that uh, Trump will get reelected. I see Biden as a ticket to Trump. That is that. Yes. And, and not just by those who will vote third party. I think a centrist, uh, somebody like Biden, um, people will stay, stay home. home. Uh, yeah, Certain, I, yes. Yes. Young people will stay home. They will not vote. Or they will vote for a third party. That's that's really, I should have put it that yes. way, Michael. You're One of the right. two. Yeah, the bigger yeah. effect probably will be just to stay home, but that will be enough. I asked you, what are we going to do when the Senate doesn't convict Trump? And you said, well, there's an election coming up. And that is very true. We can vote in the primaries and you should vote for the person who most aligns with you. Don't, don't be playing some kind of weird game of, right. of chess. Just vote for who you... Yeah. like the best and then and then let that person hopefully win if not get behind whoever the person is that wins the nomination yes uh bernie sanders was criticized right. by many people for doing that in 2016 and that just revealed to me that uh people on my side uh, leftists can be as much in denial as people on the right or anybody else because uh, to say uh, he was wrong to support Hillary at that point, is is <laughs> to fail to see, to refuse to see that Trump was even worse on balance than uh, yeah. Hillary. No, Bernie did the right thing. Bernie. I'm aware of all, I, I accept all of the left criticisms of the Democratic Party and of Hillary specifically and of Obama. Uh, and of most of these candidates right now, certainly of Biden, tremendous shortcomings and uh, far from adequate from what we need at all. And nobody's perfect, mm -hmm. you know, even uh, from any particular point of view. Uh, even even uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have, haven't taken on the military industrial complex, although Bernie has talked about it more than almost anybody else, or nuclear weapons, various things. But, uh, you know, they really are a, a new voice. I will be, certainly, I would say I will be backing Bernie Sanders. And remember, as Michael, as you know, it's not just who you vote for, who one votes for in the voting booth. That really doesn't matter that much when you come down to it. One vote does not determine elections. 
It's how you use your activity, your influence, your audience, if you have one, your voice, and especially in the swing states under our current system. Remember, I really, and I think you agree, would like very much to change that current system. So the Electoral System College does not rule, and uh, everybody's vote will count in the different states, and you won't have swing states. That, that That will not be a phenomenon at that point, but it is very much now. So there will be four to 10 states that will be critical here, and it will be essential to elect um, a non, (laughs) not Trump, whoever it is, even Biden, if we could do it. Uh, uh, Because uh, a bad, short short as he is uh, in terms of uh, what we need, uh, it's not Trump. He will not be trying to destroy civilization in terms of climate, uh, which Trump is trying to do, in effect. Right. How do we, but how do, it's amazing to me that you maintain uh, this level of optimism. You know? <laughs> what optimism? <laughs> where, where did you well, hear optimism? I, I hear you saying that we still have, we still have elections. Yeah. We still have a chance. We have at least a chance by next November to stop the madness, the current madness yes. of Donald J. Trump. Yes. That is a is a possibility. Not necessarily a reality. I agree with you. I think if the election were held today, uh, whoever the Democrat would be uh, would win the popular vote by more votes than Hillary won it uh, in 16, but could still lose the Electoral College uh, to Trump. Yeah. Because his loyal supporters have not deserted him. They will be out in force for him. Yeah. I do have to say that's not to their credit, really. I have to say, yes, a lot of those people are abused. They have been oppressed. They have been ignored by the Democrats as much as by anybody. They've been lied to. They've been left in the lurch, et cetera, et cetera. That's all true. They are victim and they feel that way and with basis. To respond to that by electing Donald Trump is not to their credit. There's, I don't see any no. way around that. No, and we are talking about white people. I am the Trump demographic. I am an angry white guy over the age of 50 with a high school education. <laughs> so that, so I know these guys because I grew up with them. Mm. I still know them uh, uh, back home here. And I understand why they're upset. I understand why even though they, some of them don't agree with Trump, saw him as the human Molotov cocktail that they could throw into the system to just blow things up because their lives have been so miserable for the last 10, 20 years. I get it. I get that. But what I say to them is this, you know, who else has it miserable black people, black (laughs) African Americans. So as, as, as much as black America has been punked on, you know, as much as they've had to go through or native Americans, who has it worse than them? And yet, what do they do when they come out to vote? They vote for the Democrat. They vote for the Democrat every time. They don't say, oh, you know, I, 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 nobody's done anything for me, so I'm either going to stay home or I'm going to vote. I'm going I'm to, yeah, I don't care if Trump gets in there. 98% of black women voted against Trump, <laughs> voted for him. <laughs> Mostly, obviously, for Hillary. They voted for Hillary. And yet, are they not as abused as Lunch Bucket Joe from Macomb County in Michigan? I would say yes. 
I would say they've had to go through the struggle that that poor white people have to go through. But what you know, what is it? Why don't black people just say to hell with this? You know, I'm going to vote for Trump. How does that uh, how does that argument uh, go over? In other words, have you? Yeah, not very well. <laughs> not very well. But I, I don't care because I'm going to tell them to quit whining, quit whining and do the right thing. And I, I agree with you, them. And I say this, look, I realize the Democrats, if you're living in Detroit, if you're living in Flint, you know, where are the Democrats? Why are we in year five or whatever it is of the Flint poisoning? We have a Democratic governor now in Lansing, Michigan. Where, you know, so I get it. I totally get it. I'm every bit as pissed off. But we have to think clearly here and not just be run by our legitimate emotional state mm-hmm. um, because we have to remove. Uh, somebody said this to me here uh, the other day. It's like the body politic of America right now is a very, very sick, very ill patient. And Trump is a boil on that, on that diseased body. But that's what he is. He's just the, yes, Lance the boil, get rid of the boil, but you've still got the, the diseased body you've got to take care of. And the reason why Bernie is number one in all the polls with Latino voters, uh, number two with African-Americans after Biden right now, and that's changing more and more. Uh, you know, Bernie is, has really risen with African-American voters in recent polls. And that's because they know he's the real deal. He will not turn on them. He will not be bought off. Um, and they know that. And that's why they will be excited about uh, voting for him. I, I feel very strongly about this. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> you mentioned uh, to Michiganders, you said that I went to Cranbrook, which is, of course, uh, a fairly rich boy school, which uh, where the sons of the Roger, <laughs> the Rogers that you turned again, uh, the sons of the auto manufacturers. Tim Roger McCoy, Smith. Yeah. From, uh, I was a scholarship student, full scholarship student. And uh, uh, in fact, when I graduated, uh, I spent the summer working at the Dodge plant number three in Hamtramck because I was expecting a life as a labor organizer or labor, or labor economist, which is what I studied in college. Mm. And uh, I was very familiar with the, the Memorial Day massacre at Republic Steel in Chicago and the, uh, mm. the Battle of the Overpass in, with Walter Ruther and so forth. And that's, that's where I was headed. I joined the UAW when I was 17. I had to get my father's oh, permission. Wow. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So just for people listening, you know, the Dodge factory um, in Hamtramck, Michigan, Hamtramck mm-hmm. is a city within the city limits of Detroit. So it's like, right, it's a hardcore town uh, that exists within the city limits of Detroit. And that well, factory. I'm, uh, experiencing right now, very bad hearing problems really got worse. It started in the, in the press shop in Hamtramck, which if you've been in a press room, uh, you know, where they punch out the, the uh, big things, the tops and the, yeah, brutal. And the sides and so forth, the scream of those machines I've never really recovered from. I, I, in fact, I was very interested to see that the first place that the UAW uh, bargained on conditions, not just salary, you know, retirement or whatever, but conditions was Dodge Plant Number Three, uh, where they mm. used to wear carrying, you know, phones over your ears and mufflers over your ears at all. Now they do, uh, so uh, my hearing is uh, very damaged now. 
I'm sorry about that, and I'm sorry that uh, Detroit and Hamtramck uh, is, is responsible for this. No, no, then uh, I became a cold warrior, as did a lot of the unions, uh, in fact, at that time, and uh, went, went in a, a different direction. But certainly, um, uh, I didn't imagine in favor, the best thing I can say for the Democratic Party now is that it has Alexandria Ocasio, uh, AOC in, in it, it has Bernie Sanders, it has Elizabeth Warren, um, and uh, I must say, I it didn't dream in 2016 at the beginning of the campaign that an old Jewish socialist could come close to getting that nomination or had a real crack at getting it. I don't think Bernie himself uh, imagined that at the beginning. And uh, No, he so didn't. <laughs> the possibility of taking over the Democratic Party, which is not an overnight thing, it takes... Uh, long organizing and long work in emulation of what the right wing did, the right wing youth in particular, I think, Young Americans for Freedom. So they took over the Republican Party after the defeat of their candidate, Goldwater, in 1964. Mm -hmm. He was totally right. destroyed, uh, lost you know anything but a few states in the South. 16 years later, they had taken over the Republican Party to the point where they got Ronald Reagan in 1980. Well, we don't have, in a way, 16 years to do something about climate, but uh, the idea of working politically to uh, change the uh, possibilities in this country is, a ch is the challenge to us. We can't, we can't go on as of now. And getting either Sanders or, or Warren in, which will be very hard, odds against it, I would say, uh, we need that. And uh, uh, got to try do our best, even if it even if it's a long shot, to do that, because as Noam Chomsky puts it, Republican Party today is the most dangerous political organization in human history. Mm. That sounds almost necessarily crazy, you know, hyperbolic. How can one say anything like that? Mm. And what he's referring to is the fact that, as he says, they are doing their absolute best monolithically to uh, favor the short-run interests of ExxonMobil and others and put fossil, put uh, CO2 into the atmosphere as fast right. as they can. Right. <laughs> There's never been anything like that. We've never faced a conscious challenge like that ever. That's so true. I want to ask you just before we uh, close here, something about um, – there's a documentary. It's actually my favorite documentary of all time. It's called Hearts and Minds by the director, uh, Peter Davis. You appear prominently in this documentary. This yeah. is now, this was made back in 1975, 76. And, um, and he interviews you. Um, it, was, it was just before the end yeah. of the war. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think he probably started this back in 72, 73, the project itself. Oh, yeah. But, no, it was done in, in 72, 73, right? Yeah. Uh, and it came out in 75, I believe, um, and won the Oscar for Best Documentary. Mm -hmm. It's no surprise that in a very poor country, you can find people who will wear foreign uniforms. What has always surprised us, what we've never been willing to predict or understand, is that the Vietnamese communist leadership can find enough people to live in the tunnels, fight for nothing, wearing ragged shorts year after year under the American bonds. A war in which 
one side is entirely financed and equipped and supported by foreigners is not a civil war. The only foreigners in that country were the foreigners we financed in the first part of the war and the foreigners we were in the second half of the war. Basically, we didn't want to acknowledge the scale of our involvement there. We didn't want to realize that it was our war because that would have been to say that every casualty on both sides was a casualty caused by our policy. The question used to be, might it be possible that we were on the wrong side in the Vietnamese war? But we weren't on the wrong side. We are the wrong side. Wow. So that is maybe one of the most profound statements I've ever seen in a documentary, that we are the wrong side. It's so hard for us as Americans to wrap our heads around the idea, how could we possibly be the wrong side? Why, we're for truth and justice in the American way, and we deliver democracy to your doorstep. But the truth was something very different, a truth that you exposed with the Pentagon Papers, and and the, it's such a moment in this film. When I saw it in the theater with an audience back in back in the mid seventies, uh, it was it was like a a mallet coming out of the screen and whacking me and everybody else in the audience. It was so powerful. And what have we learned now, all these years later, all these almost fifty years later? Well, look, we're talking right now, just a week or two after the revelation of the so-called Afghanistan papers, in which it, it turns out that the highest officials in the government, military and civilian, were asking, well, the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld, was saying, I can't see who the good guys are here. Or loot the general in charge uh, of the area, basically saying, you know, we didn't have the foggiest idea of what we were doing, and again, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? But they weren't facing up ever. Uh, they were recognizing that we were in a endless stalemate, that we were making no progress, that the statements about progress, uh, that we were all these same people were making to the American public and the president was making were false. That wasn't happening. And it can go on again. Not one of them, I think, revealed that at the time. But what they haven't faced up to is our role there. Uh, which is foreign invaders, foreign occupiers. And none of these sides on the thing uh, were, were terribly uh, mobile, uh, you know, admirable in all respects, who is, in effect. But there were some people there who really had no right to be there killing people, and that was us. Uh, what they hadn't faced up to was an imperial role here, an empire, where we thought we had the right to remake other other nations and to decide regime change. And regime change is the virtual definition of empire. Now, the notion that we have a right to go on killing Afghans for whatever reason, uh, uh, protecting women there and who need protecting, but uh, whatever, that we have a right to be killing Afghans right now and losing some Americans, but at a 10 or more to one rate, killing Afghans is something American people haven't faced up to. And that's true yeah. elsewhere. And uh, in Yemen right now, we're, we're supporting uh, the Saudis, giving them weapons, selling them weapons, servicing their planes, refueling their planes, giving them target information, which they largely use to uh, kill civilians in Yemen and to blockade them and produce famines there. Mm -hmm. Not right. the case 
where both houses of Congress actually voted to cut off the aid. By the way, an effort that happened to be led by Senator Bernie Sanders, but he got actual votes. Uh, that had never happened since from Republicans. We did it in uh, since 1973 when Congress cut off the votes for Vietnam. That was the first time in history where I think any legislature had cut off funding for an ongoing war on that time. And it's the second time except that Trump vetoed it. So (laughs) an enormous crime against the peace is going on right now, crime against humanity Mm, in mm, Yemen by us. And uh, that doesn't define us as the good guys. It just... No. uh, We, uh, the idea that we support democracy in the third world, the former colonial world, the underdeveloped world, is false. It's a myth that I believed in for much of my life and finally came to, saw that it certainly wasn't true in Vietnam, but it was really later that I came to see that that was not an aberration, that basically we more often than not support dictatorships, coups, uh, authoritarian regimes, because they suit our corporate interests, our economic interests, better than a democracy, better than a country with unions and peasant organizations do, and with welfare states of any kind. Uh, So that uh, it's simply false that we are uh, the good guys when it comes to that part of the world, that half of the world. And that's still true. It's what we're seeing now. The Afghan papers... uh, show that these people, I think, never did come to understand that, even though they knew we weren't winning. But, you know, the American people have been willing to tolerate uh, killing foreigners from the air without too many American casualties indefinitely. And that's what you've just seen, (laughs) 18 years in Afghanistan. Without changing both parties, it can go on for another 18 years. And that's... Let's hope not. I think I just also just wanted, I don't know if I've ever done this in person or have um, uh, told you this over the phone or whatever. I'm sorry? Just a, I just, I, I, mean, I was just saying, I, was, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you or thank you, just outright thank you personally. Thank you for what you've done, for what you did, for the, the look, when you look at what's happened now to Chelsea Manning, to Ed Snowden. Yeah. I mean, it's what they did was really no different than what you did. And you are considered an American hero. And I don't understand why these two individuals uh, uh, don't get the same. But boy, I'll tell you, you know, they want to lock them up and throw the key away. And the message to other possible whistleblowers is don't you even think about taking documents that will tell the American people the truth. Um, well, there are a lot of you know, those two people are heroes of mine. And, uh, and, and at the same time, I identify them with them. What does that mean? Well, they represent what they did represents my, what I've done best, <laughs> the best part of my life, which is not the whole of my life uh, by any means. But uh, I, I know and, and like Ed Snowden very much, but I admire, Ch- I don't know Chelsea to speak of, but uh, I know them uh, as people whose example I would like to see others follow. And my newest hero, and as much as them actually, 
is 16 years old, Greta Thunberg. Uh, mm, Michael, yes. I think uh, this point will interest you. It isn't made very often. She's known for leading inspiring demonstrations all over the world. 1.6, 1.2 million, I think it was, in the uh, beginning of the year. And in October, four to six million people, young people, demonstrated against uh, the uh, apathy, the inactivity on climate change. But they demonstrated on a weekday, on Friday. They took off from school uh, and they called this situation, as she did when she was doing it alone, as a strike. That's Mm. what it is. Uh, I don't think Mm. we're going to change the world here and change our policies without being willing to use the civil disobedience, but very specifically strikes, uh, general strike. And that's what she is leading right now. And uh, as I say, my own interest in the in the labor movement, that's how, as you know, the, uh, labor, the or, uh, car industry was essentially organized by sit-down strikes occupying buildings which were held by the Supreme Court to be illegal eventually. But by that time, nonviolent, inside, they just occupied the place, and um, they had organized pretty much the auto industry at that point. And we're going to have to show that kind of willingness to pay personal cost and to take a risk and to change our lives directly. You asked whether I was an optimist. Here's the kind of optimist I am. Greta Thunberg said to a parliament recently, I saw the quote in the transcript, she said to these parliamentarians, I forgot which one it was, she listed all the things that had to be done uh, to avert catastrophic climate change. And she said, I don't believe for a second that you're going to do any of these things, but I hope I'm wrong. And I realized when I read that, that's my hope. I don't see a likely way out of the situation we've created here, given the strength of the institutions we're facing, the military-industrial complex, the uh, fossil fuel industry, Exxon, places like that, the banks. I don't see how we get beyond them, but I hope I'm wrong. And that's not an idle hope, because I've often been wrong in the past. I've been wrong. So that's my hope. We've got a chance. It's not impossible. Just the other day at COP25, which the the climate conference, when she gave a terrific speech and followed by, uh, I don't think she was involved directly in inspiring this, but a lot of people crushed the stage, young people, and uh, occupied it for a while. And they were chanting, uh, we are unstoppable and Change is possible. Another world, that's what they said, another world is possible. That's true. Mm. It's possible. It's not impossible. Yes. That's what we've got to work with. And uh, uh, it's worth it because the stakes are everything. The stakes in, in the climate area and nuclear era are everything. So it is worth our utmost efforts without violence, I would say, uh, truthfully, but with self-risk and self-sacrifice, it's we have a chance of enlarging that possibility and keeping it all going. I'm with you. I'm with you all the way with that. I, I feel every bit of the despair in the first part of what you said, that that we are 
probably doomed at this point. But, but the one hope is that if people get active now, strike now, fight now, we have that chance. Why would we not take that chance? Who would sit idly by at this point? You've been that inspiration. Greta is now that inspiration. And we need to take that and run with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Daniel Ellsberg, um, I can't thank you enough here on the eve of this uh, impeachment vote uh, to have you uh, with us. You who were part of the reason that Nixon was in the process of being impeached uh, 45 years ago uh, this year. You're still with us. You're still fighting strong. We love you. Thank you for being on my second podcast. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real and pleasure. Thank you for your and films, Michael, because you are using your life. Uh, you exemplify right livelihood uh, very much. Those films are powerful and have the real chance of bringing about change. No guarantee, but no better chance. And, and thank you for those. Well, thank you. And, th- and to everyone listening, we thank you. And, and we, if we invite you to be part of this, if you're not already, uh, always remember, as I say to everybody, there's more of us than there are of them. Don't ever forget that we have power. We have it in our hands. And a lot of us, I think just don't know it, but it's there and it needs to be used and used now ASAP. So thank you. Thank you, Daniel Ellsberg. And that's our second podcast here with Rumble with Michael Moore. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter 